Fit Nation. It's Fit Nation. Awesome. Where it began I can't begin to know it But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you're leading a, a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. 
you need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you will be a burden to someone or you feel embarrassed to talk to your friends or family, call the hotline at 988 and press option one. That's 988 and press option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. It's the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell. This will keep you up to date on our latest news, our episodes, and any live uh, shows that we do. And also keep you up to date with the stories of our great guests. Speaking of which, our next guest is a bass player, a music director to the stars. He has performed 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. 50. He has appeared in 12 Broadway shows and has been inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. He can currently be seen on tour with Humble Pie. His new memoir, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star, is also out now. So without further ado, let's welcome Funk Boy, also known as Ivan Brody, to the show. Welcome, Ivan. Hey, man. How's it going? Awesome, man. Doing great. Great to have you on here. Great to have an artist like yourself that has been around a lot of, uh, I guess, famous artists that, that you have pushed to successful uh, careers and helped you to, I guess, uh, build your own career as you went. Yeah, maybe the second one more. They helped pay my rent more than I helped pay <laughs> theirs, I think. But uh, it all somehow it all worked out for both of our uh, uh, advantage. <laughs> definitely, definitely does. Uh, so, Ivan, if you don't mind, uh, tell the Misfit Nation a little bit about yourself from as far back as you want to go to how you got to where we are now. Man, it sort of was like one foot in front of the other. So, uh, you know, it feels like a long story because I've been doing it a long time. Uh, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, I was raised on, you know, Southern soul music and, and uh, the, the music of uh, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips and Stevie Wonder and, and Sam and Dave and all those kind of things, you know. So I grew up listening to all that and... Uh, Went off to school in New Orleans. That was my first stop in New Orleans. So, like, I got really steeped in the music of that city. Uh, I didn't start playing bass, which has become my chosen profession now, until I was a senior in high school. So I really came to it kind of late in terms of people, you know, usually you hear about people have been playing since they were three or four years old or something like that. That wasn't my experience at all. I came to it very late. So, you know, when I when I left home to hit the road and... and find my fame and fortune it was not as a musician i was going to be like a biomedical engineer uh that was my first uh thing i was going to do and i i gave that up after a couple of years and said all right i'll get a psychology degree and then I, what i was really doing was majoring in college radio i was working for my campus station down in new orleans at wtul tulane university and from there i went into the music business as a publicist for epic records i used to work for epic records back in the day it was my first job out of school and after about, you know, three years of that, I realized the music business has nothing to do with music at all. It's all about marketing. You know, they could literally be selling soap. Uh, and I had one of the product managers uh, at, at, at Epic Records tell me, they said, I don't know anything about music. I could be selling soap. And, and, and he was right. But, you know, he made people like Gloria Stefan like a huge star because he knew about marketing. He knew all about that. It was great, but it wasn't a creative sort of pursuit. So... I handed back in my corporate Amex card, my expense account, all that kind of stuff. I said, you know, let me try to make a go of it. Went back to school, went to music school this time because I figured that's what I wanted to do. And uh, after that, you know, got 
the training I thought I needed to try to make a go of it as a professional in a in a field that there's absolutely no guarantee of success in. It's a it's a real roll of the dice, you know. Um, and somehow I, I haven't had a, a, a day job in, in almost 30 years now. So, so I, somehow it worked out. I'm not sure exactly how, but, you know, here we are. I guess all the stars aligned and the, the water parted ways for you. So we kind of uh, flipped the areas of living. I'm living in Tennessee now. You were living in New York City. I'm from Jersey City. So right on. So from Chattaboogie. So that's a, it's a big jump for you to go from Chattaboogie to NOLA and then probably around the world to get back to New York City. So it felt that way, but maybe there's like a prisoner exchange, you know, between New Jersey and Tennessee. So we just had to swap one for one. <laughs> yeah. We both took the weird train, the midnight train. I wound up in Clarksville. So, I mean, it's awesome to hear your journey in uh, Tulane University, the great university down there in NOLA, and uh, still is. It's the green, I think it's called the Green Wave, I think they call themselves down there. Exactly right. You got that. Nailed it. Did you uh, play any of the bars down there when you were in school? I did, yeah. I started to do my first semi-pro gigs down there. So, uh, you know, Jimmy's Music Club was a big uh, mainstay for me. As a as a fan, as an attendee of shows, and also as a player, uh, played at Tipitina's many times, played the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival a few times. Uh, one of the first sort of high-level kind of national gigs I did was uh, using as a pickup band musician with Bo Diddley. I played with Bo three times when he came through through new orleans like i knew somebody who knew the knew the booking agent you know kind of thing got hired in to do that so i i kind of had these semi-pro experiences at, at that time and was also through the radio station was helping to promote those shows so i was meeting the artists that the record labels would send down to to be interviewed on the station so that we'd help promote their shows like i met the red hot chili peppers in 1984 you know, when they were in a van, like, you know, <laughs> Flea had one bass and if he broke a string, the gig was over. I mean, I saw him do that in front of 15 people <laughs> the first time they came through town, <laughs> stuff like that. So, you know, it was a, it was a kind of circuitous path that I, that I, I wove for myself. Um, and then when I gave up the business thing again, like I said, you know, I did, I did have training now, but I did, there's no guarantee, you know, nobody in, 30 years has ever asked to see my Berkeley diploma. Like they don't <laughs> like, are you sure you're a music school graduate? I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it has no bearing in, in the, in the working world, but then very slowly again, one foot in front of the other, like, uh, the first gig I got when I got back to New York, you know, uh, uh, at 92 is when I landed back here, uh, after music school, a friend of a, a friend of mine's cousin, was dating a guy who was the music director for the Shirelles, a great, uh, great rock and roll classic act, you know, and they needed a bass player. And it was a last minute thing. And uh, they knew that I'd just come from music school. So they figured like, you know, the, <laughs> this guy came to see me play at a, a $50 blues gig in New York City at the Ear Inn, you know, at, I think it started at midnight, like midnight to three in the morning kind of thing. And he had a manila envelope in his hand. And I believe in his mind what he was thinking, like, if this guy can play at all, he's got the gig. Because it was one of those situations where we had to drive five hours to Massachusetts, play at a family fun fair set up in the church parking lot, you know, do two sets, and then come back to New York like the same day. It was kind of a grueling gig, and they needed somebody quite desperately. And, you know, again, if this guy can play at all, he's just got a music school, he's probably fine. So he watched uh, the first set of this blues gig and he handed me the manila envelope and said, you know, you got the job. 
And what was in there was a, a, a normal biased cassette tape copy of the show, of the live show, and uh, a stack of sheets that were just like chord charts, you know, and say, here, learn the show and meet the, meet the van at 40th and 9th, 40th Street and 9th Avenue behind Port Authority, you know, on whatever day it was, it's probably Saturday, you know, and drive up there. And I did. I did my homework, and I, and I got the gig. And from that, like, one thing followed into another. Like, the drummer from that recommended me to another gig, and that's, you know, it, all of it sort of followed from that. It, you know, it took 30 years, but, yeah, I, <laughs> I got 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on the, on the resume you know, after all that time. But I'm sure, Darn, those 30 years of uh, gigging and playing with amazing people, it kind of flew by for you, I'm sure, as you went through it. Well, it feels that way sort of in retrospect, you know, looking back, but at the time, you know, yeah, it, it no, it took all of 30 years. I, I, <laughs> I felt every road mile, you know, I still got it on, on my, my tail, you know, uh, from the car seat or whatever. Um, but yeah, like I say, kind of one foot in front of the other. Uh, and and you, the other thing too, is you never know what was going to lead to what, like I'm saying that $50 blues gig I was doing, you know, led to, you know, I've, I've been playing with the Shirelles on and off since 93, I think, you know, so Shirley just retired this year. She's 81. Wow. You know, she retired, you know, the pandemic made her think like, ah, you know, no gigs. I think I'm okay. I've been touring for 60 something years. Like maybe I'm good. You know, I still talk to her, you know, so that led to a, yeah, close to almost a, a, a 27, 28 years of, of touring on and off, you know, from a $50 blues gig. You just, you just don't know. There's right. no way to know. <laughs> And that's, I mean, that's amazing. And uh, I know you call yourself the working class rock star. Explain to the audience what that means to be a working class <laughs> rock star. Working class, because I work for a living. You know, I, I've i got, you've, you've seen in the book, you've seen all the pictures of me standing next to famous people, you know. So there's me, you know, for I'm, I'm next to a famous pe- person for at least one five hundredth of a second, long enough for a camera shutter to go off, you know. But, uh, you know, and I've done famousy things with famous people, you know, but I, I lift my own amps. I drive myself to the gig. You know, I work for a living. Like, it's, I definitely spend time, hours at the house transcribing music, preparing, you know, doing all the homework it requires, and then, you know, literally lifting amps, you know, wh- while wearing a tuxedo, loading into the to the <laughs> catering hall to play the, the Lipschitz Bar Mitzvah in Piscataway. You know, I do all that stuff in between all the rock star stuff. What's the strangest uh, event you ever done? That strangest gig you had to go do? Oh man, so many. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Like I've got such a collection of, of just oddball things. And one of the stories I tell in the book, because people ask that question a lot, like what, what's the strangest one you did? I think the strangest one I did, I got hired to play a wedding gig in Manhattan. So far we're on regular, we're on normal territory, right? And it's with a little acoustic trio. I'm playing acoustic bass, there's acoustic guitar and little drums played with brushes, which is kind of like, unusual for a wedding gig because usually wedding gigs like a big dance party kind of thing so to have like a little light cocktail sort of trio was that was a little unusual and then we went to play at this place um i think it was called the angel orange hand center it's an old decommissioned synagogue on the lower east side uh from the i believe i want to say built in the 1800s sometimes it was a very gothic looking building it's very old and creaky and rickety and spooky and looks like you know you could shoot a vampire movie there no problem and they every time somebody they rent it out as a catering hall too so I, and i played there many times so again you get a call for a wedding gig 
playing at this synagogue on the Lower East Side, no problem. I know where it is. I know the parking in that neighborhood's awful. I know everything about, you know, <laughs> how to get in there. Uh, we get in there, and they've got the thing lit up. You know, this they put all this theatrical lighting in it to make it look even extra spooky. And they've got a florist has come in and, and assembled basically a, a tr- an island. There's an island in the middle of the floor. There's a, you know, a sweetheart table with two chairs at it and, you know, a big, nice dinner table. And it's on a platform. And around the platform is a moat. They've made a moat. And awesome. they've constructed this trees, this canopy of trees made, you know, like brought in by a florist. Like this extravagant, unbelievable setup, right? The kicker was there were no guests at this wedding. It was like a $100,000 wedding. And it was just the couple in the room. And this little trio in the corner, it was the spookiest, weirdest thing. We call, we ended up calling it the Hannibal Lecter wedding because we would oh. not have been surprised to find out the next day in the paper that, you know, somebody was eaten by their new spouse, you know, at the, uh, <laughs> at the conclusion of the evening. But, you know, like caterers would come in and out with, you know, it was like a five-course meal and, the, you know, everything was sort of normal. And they even had like a first dance and a cake cutting and all the things you do at weddings, but nobody was there. Not anybody was there. It was the spookiest thing we've ever done. <laughs> Spooky uh, seemed borderline crazy, but uh, I guess that's what they wanted, and uh, hope hey. they were happy. <laughs> no family or no friends. I don't know what it was, but a lot of money to spend. It was a you know a full ticket wedding. Just wow. didn't invite anybody. <laughs> Maybe they didn't want to share the experience with anyone but themselves. I guess. <laughs> no, I, 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 there was a photographer there too. I, not a videographer, so they have pictures of it. You know, but. I, yeah, really odd. Really so odd. It's them and then you guys playing in the corner somewhere. <laughs> it's amazing. So at what point during your journey did you decide, hey, I, I need to start writing this stuff down and create a memoir so I have something to say, hey, I, I did all this? What would happen was, you know, invariably somewhere we'd, we'd be doing a sound check and then we'd, there'd be a dinner break. So the whole band would be sitting around a table. And if something funny or odd or weird had happened during that day, it would always put me in mind of something else that happened that was weirder or more extravagant or at, a, at a previous gig. So I would be, you know, we'd be sitting around this dinner table and I'd be telling, Hey man, this reminds me of the time we were in such and such doing so-and-so. And then you want, you're not going to believe what happened. And I just have like so many of these bizarre, weird, you know, funny, goofy stories over the years, you know, I would tell them and people, around this, you know, my bandmates would all say like, you got to start writing this stuff down, man. You've got like a, a, a ton of these things. You probably got a book in it. And I used to write, you know, back in my record company days, you know, as a publicity, publicity person, a publicist, I was writing the artist biographies and some of the album liner notes and, you know, press releases and stuff like that. So I've always kind of had the writing gene a bit um, and, and, you know, writ, wrote some reviews for magazines, you know, years ago, I haven't done it in a long time. So about, I want to say maybe four years ago now, I sat down um, during the wintertime, because the wintertime is our slowest season. You know, summers, we're doing outdoor concerts, we're doing weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs, and all that kind of stuff. So we're busy, busy, busy. But sometimes in January and February, you can sit around for like two months and not do a whole lot. So I sat down and I started writing this stuff out, you know, and write, you know, a couple pages a day, and then come back the next day and write another couple pages and recount another sort of story. And and did about most of it about four years ago. Got uh, you know almost all the way finished, and then got busy again, and never quite got it finished. And I don't know if you heard, but about two years ago, suddenly all the gigs shut down. <laughs> we couldn't go nowhere for like 
15 months, we sat home with no gigs. There was no place to go, no place to play, you know, never, nothing was allowed. So I had plenty of time on my hands. Uh, I was trying to do was, was uh, make lemonade out of the lemons that life had given us. And I had time to finish the book, get it formatted, get it copy edited, get it, you know, uh, all the artwork together and did it all myself, got it all uh, released on Amazon, put out into the world and it's, I'm so glad I did it. It's been such a rewarding experience and people that have read it really seem to respond to it well and find it funny and engaging. And, uh, and the other thing too, is like, you know, all my years of, of, of doing artistic pursuits, you know, when you, you know, if you're working for money playing for somebody else, you know, you're, you're making money again, weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, or playing concerts, whatever you're doing. But anytime you want to put out your own record, or your own original project, it becomes a money pit. You know, you've got to pay the other musicians, you got to pay for studio time, you got to pay, you know, so it's all you almost never ever, you know, make back what you put into your independent things, right? It's just the nature of the business is fine. And this book actually turned a profit. Like I've actually <laughs> made like a, a month, I'm not rich, you know, I made a month's rent off of it, you know, kind of thing. But I'm like, when has an independent project my whole life ever turned a profit? I'm like, this is amazing. I should have been doing this all along, I think, maybe. <laughs> and that's kind of the amazing thing of what Amazon has done with the, to help the, the self-published or indie author to yeah. get their stuff in there, basically for bottom dollar to get in. Besides paying for a copy editor, you probably didn't have to pay for anything unless maybe the cover art to get that thing published. And it was amazing. I did it all myself. Yeah. I did it all myself. You know, it's like I trained myself to, to figure out, you know, Photoshop and all this stuff. Right. <laughs> You know, I had time, had time on my hands. I mean, I kind of knew some of that stuff, but yeah, I just formatted it myself. And it's the kind of the great thing about the internet in general, in terms yeah. of not just Amazon, but like YouTube and everything else. Like, you know, when, when I started in the music business, working for a major record label, you know, there were what, six major record labels at the time. There's like one now, you know, but, you know, they were the gatekeepers. So like to get to the marketplace, you had to go through these distribution networks. Like you had to get a yes from some A&R manager at, uh, you know, at some major record label to, to even get a shot at getting your stuff out to to radio and, and MTV and whatever else the avenues of promotion were they, these those days. But now it's wide open. Anybody can get there. Like you can put up, you know, you can record yourself and put yourself on YouTube and, and have instant worldwide distribution right now you know, which is a blessing and a curse because not only can you do it, everybody else can do it too. <laughs> so like, how do you kind of rise above that and sort of, uh, you know, get any, any clicks or any views or whatever to any downloads kind of thing. So it, it, it has opened up the game. Just, just, it opened up to everybody, which is, I think great because, you know, now anybody who's got something to say can absolutely have it, have their day in court, you know, have their day on the stump saying what they got to say. Exactly. And uh, even even with the podcast world now, you don't have to be Joe Rogan to have a show. Now you can be That's just right. average Joe like me in Misfit Nation and be able to talk to amazing guests the same way and get that voice out there and, and give people a voice, a platform to tell their stories and share their knowledge with the world. And I think it's a, a great thing that we have transitioned to. It's the great equalizer in a way like everybody can anybody can do it, you know, and I, th I support that it's, it's the, you know, the ultimate democratic ideal, you know, anybody can get out here, <clears throat> excuse me, and say what they got to say, you know, again, the, the next trick is like, how do you sort of like gain the, the audience, you know, but that's, 
that's the kind of problem you want to have, you know? <laughs> that's a that's a good uh, first world problem to have right there and uh, exactly and dealing with its fun so mm-hmm. so you talked earlier about uh your butt being in the, in the car seat for all those days a lot <laughs> of people out there they see hear the word rock star or musician and they think tour and the touring life is glamorous let's go into it let's go into the life of the the rock star on, on the road there <laughs> it's all that time on the bus i haven't spent that many time on buses a lot of the tours i do are fly dates, spot dates, uh, driving dates, you know, a little, a little bus time. I think there's some more of that about to come up in the future. Um, I've driven the van, you know, for as many times as I've been driven around, you know, I'm certainly the van driver last, last two humble pie tours. I probably spent as much time behind the wheel, you know, of a a sprinter pulling a U-Haul trailer as anything else. And yeah, all glamour all the time. Don't, don't believe what anybody tells you. It's all, (laughs) it's all, it's all fun and games. But yeah, no, it, it's work, it's travel. You know, I, I think the the sort of running joke that I have with a lot of my musician buddies at, at this level is like, we'll do the gig for free. That We love playing. That's that's not what you're paying us for. You're paying us for the travel, the logistics, the setup, like trying to get from Cleveland to Chicago, you know, and get set up and get your gear checked and get the sound checked and get the monitors right and get all that, you know, all that stuff is exhausting. And then... When the curtain goes up, you're like, hey, showtime. And you got to be sort of, you know, on your game and not grumpy and not tired and not hungry and not, you know, PO'd from the whatever happened in the parking lot the day before at the outside the the Wawa when you're getting fueled up, you know. So it's, uh, they're definitely challenges, definitely challenges too. And, and the other thing too is like, I think, you know, people sort of think like, you know, when you get to a real rock star level, you start, you fly to the gigs, right? Right. And what I can tell you about that, because I've done a ton of that, is that's even more exhausting than driving. Because when you're flying, you, you're usually trying to get the first flight out in the morning. So you're getting like a 6 a.m. flight out because you want to have a little leeway time. If something screws up, like it's delayed, you miss a connection, this, that, and the other thing. You want to get to where you're going as early as you can so you can have, you know, all the screw-up time uh you know, have, have adjustment time or sometimes there's only one flight a day to, you know, out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, coming, <laughs> coming to Atlanta, which then gets you back to, to Newark to get you back to, you know, I've, I've, I've had connections go bad that way. So, you know, the, the gig will get over at, um, you know, 11 o'clock at night, you know, and you come off stage just full of adrenaline and, you know, you, you can't just drop off and go right to sleep. You know, you're going to get to bed and the hotel and you're going to look at a hotel for three hours then that alarm goes off and you're like okay now we get to go do it all over again you know it's exhausting you know the just the lack of sleep that can happen on on an airplane tour i've certainly done that and that's that's those are the toughest ones for me i think all right yeah and i can see that and and especially coming from the hub you're right there and how many cancellations happen in the, the even with three airports right there in new york city you have cancellations of flights so often to come south or even uh, west that it's hard to get the perfect flight to, to your location. So I really understand that there. 100%. 100%. The other thing, too, like I remember uh, the first time I played with Little Anthony and the Imperials, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, Little Anthony and the Imperials, was down in Naples, Florida on a Friday night. And Saturday night we were to be in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Now, I don't know how your geography is, but there's no direct line from Naples, Florida to Niagara Falls, Ontario. It's not, you can't get there from here. So it was a flight from Naples. I think we probably got to 
uh, a big hub. I don't know where it was, Atlanta. It might have been, you know, some other hub and then a connecting flight to Buffalo, New York, and then a, a bus from Buffalo across the, the bridge into uh, and clearing customs and all that entails, you know, make sure everybody's got their their pay, get your papers in order. You know, so we had to leave the hotel in uh, Naples. I think it was a 4 a.m. lobby call, you know, so, you know, which means you've got to be up and, and showered and packed before 4 a.m. You know, 4 a.m. the bus is leaving kind of thing. So, uh, you know, and I'm just thinking like that's going to be a, a brutal day to, you know, be in the lobby at 4 a.m. and then have a show to do that night in, in, in Ontario. Uh, and then, I, you know, I, I had a, a gentleman at the time, and Anthony was in his 70s, you know, been on the road for 50 years at that point. So when, when a gentleman in his 70s says, be in the lobby at 4 a.m. and you're a young whippersnapper, you just all you can say is, yes, sir, you got it. <laughs> I'll be there, you know, I've, I've got no room to complain about this at all, you know, so, so yeah, 4 a.m. lobby calls, very common. <laughs> very awesome. <laughs> so if you can give advice to someone that's just getting in, getting their feet wet in the music industry now, trying to play the bars like you did in NOLA right. or in radio and trying to get that marketing uh, aspect of it before jumping into it, what would it be for them to do to become a, uh, have that working class rock style, rock, rock artist style lifestyle you have. <laughs> well, I tell people, I just heard somebody else say the same exact thing the other day too. I thought I'd made this up, but uh, it turns out it's, I'm not the only one who's had this thought. If you can do anything else but music, do that. Because <laughs> this, this will kick your butt and break your heart over and over again, over again. But when you get to the point, and this happened to me, you know, I got to this point where I, I had a career, I had a, like I said, I had the business expense account. I had the corporate Amex card, all this kind of stuff. And I just kind of hit the wall with it. And I realized the only thing I realized I figured I could do was try to be a musician. And again, it was a, it was a tough realization because I said, man, that's not going to be easy. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I said, this is going to be tough. And that's why I went to school. I said, I need, I need to get some training if I'm going to really try to make a go of this. Um, but if you if you've gotten to that point where it's, it's your, the, the only thing you can reasonably do, you know, then you got to buckle down and really put in the work, put in the hours and realize what it's going to take. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of heart and it's going to take a lot of good luck. That said, as you, you heard the saying goes, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. So once you put in the time and the hours, take everything you can play everywhere you can do anything you can. Cause like I said earlier, you never know what's going to lead to what, and all of the, all of the quote unquote big rock star stuff I've got has come from doing a $50 gig somewhere where I met somebody in the band who then recommended me to something else, you know, cause I showed up it, to, to us, us, I mean, sort of my, my circle of, of, of associates sort of in the New York area, it doesn't matter if the gig pays $50 or if it's uh, in Madison square garden. Like if you've taken the gig, if you've accepted the gig, you need to bring your full professional commitment to that gig at whatever level it is. You know, if you said yes to the gig now you've got to, you've got to bring your a game. You can't go into a gig. It's like, ah, this isn't really important. I don't real, I don't feel like it. You know, nobody's going to see it. No, no, no. You just don't know. You don't know who's watching it. Especially now, with everything, you know, some there's one person in the back of the room with the camera up. Yep. It's on YouTube, you know, like it's not that Big Brother is watching, but, you know, that could be your audition for something else farther down the road. You don't even know about it. 
definitely. Someone's always watching now. So. Somebody's always watching. You, right. you could be auditioning for a gig that you, you don't, an opportunity that you don't even have yet. You know, because as soon as somebody gives you a, a name, say, hey, man, you should check out this such and such drummer for this gig. And I'd be like, oh, well, let me go online. Let me see what, you know, start typing in. What's on YouTube? What's the drummer doing? You know, and if it's some gig in, in uh, wherever, you know, playing for 12 people. But, you know, you can see if somebody's if is, you know, doing a good, a solid job. And you, you, you can tell you can like their playing, even if it's, a, you know, a terrible, unprofessional camera phone video shot by a fan, you know, you'll know, you'll know. You know right. so. And you, you definitely are. Hard work does pay off there. And uh, that comes along with some sacrifice you'll have to make along the way too. You have to sacrifice some other things in order to get the, the right foot in the right door to make things work. That's great advice, Ivan. Thank you. How does someone get in contact with you to either A, find out where you're playing or get you to be on their show or just chat with you? I am highly Googleable. I can be found. Let me tell you something. Uh, everything is at funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. Not funky boy. Spelling counts in this day and age. Funkboy, funkboy.net. There are links to the to Amazon for the book. There's links to YouTube for all my clips. There's links to Color Red Music, which is putting out my my latest music. Um, the the book I've done is available in hardcover, softcover, Kindle edition, as a podcast, as YouTube clips, like any way you consume media, it's <laughs> there for you in some format or other. Um, and I can be reached, you know, through the website and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm available. You need a bass player? You traveling? Call me. <laughs> we can work out a rate. You need you the recordings. <laughs> yeah, you need homework. You need bass tracks on your on your recordings. I'll do them for you. No problem. Awesome. <laughs> Definitely. Ivan, thank you so much for coming on and taking some of your time. And of course, being uh, flexible with our uh, scheduling and getting you on here. It's been a great chat. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Man, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for sharing your platform and for, you know, taking interest in my work and, and being willing to tell your friends and fans about it. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. I appreciate you. Have a good night. Right on. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in the industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are Fit Nation.